the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters, to separate water from water. So God made the vault, and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water and the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. But then... On the eighth day. The year is 2020, the 2nd of September. I drive out to Mustard Seed Farm, where I'm interning for college credit. The farm is run by Alice McGarry and her husband, Nate. After a brief meeting, we decide that our first test will be to go across the farm and water by hand all of the, all of the smallest trees. There has been little to no rain for over three months, so we haul a long water cable across the fields and start to fill up buckets. The temperature is 89 degrees. Two hours in and I already begin to succumb to heat exhaustion. When Alice asks me a question, I find it hard to think and harder still to form sentences in reply. When I stand upright, the edges of my vision become black and fuzzy. I go take a water break and force myself to simply push through. I'm snappish though and utterly exhausted by the end of the day. If we hadn't been in one of the most severe droughts in Iowa, that entire day could have been different. Three weeks earlier, I am sitting at my desk, tuning into a virtual peer mentor session for a class I am to teach once the semester at Iowa State University begins. The forecast mentions a chance of severe thunderstorms, but that's all. About an hour into my session, ominous dark clouds have appeared over the middle school across the street from my apartment. It is deadly calm when the tornado siren suddenly wails. Since fifth grade, I have had a bone-deep paranoia that I will die during a severe weather event. Once that siren went off, I began to shake and couldn't stop. My heartbeat skyrocketed as I scrambled into my bathroom, holding a blanket across my lap. Crouched in a tight corner against the shower, I hastily call my mom. I moan and whimper as the 80 mile per hour winds lash against the building 
as I hear the chairs on the balcony slam against the rail. Wave after wave of blinding fear rolls over me, so that once the derecho is gone, I'm exhausted. The storm leaves me without power for 24 hours. My family back in Cedar Rapids is not so lucky. They are without power for a whole week, and my dad drives to Omaha to buy a generator. When I return home almost two months later, the roofs in our neighborhood are a patchwork of tiles and blue tarps. Trees I grew up with have disappeared. A neighbor's garage is blown inward, having been left open when the storm hit, having grown to 130 mile per hour winds between Ames and here. My family is lucky. Our roof is undamaged and our trees only lost a few limbs. My mom is glad I called when I did. My warning in Ames gave her time to call her co-workers at Mercy Medical Center and tell them to batten down the hatches. The three people who died were not forewarned. This is what climate change is to me. Not a beachside resort, not a distant problem, but a force in the world that is actively disrupting my life. Last year, I heard a conversation among some Catholic students. It was after 7 p.m. mass, and I was on cleanup duty, snuffing candles, locking up the tabernacle, and cleaning dishes in the sacristy. As I bundled up and headed toward their group, I overheard two distinct phrases. Climate change will turn Iowa into a beachside resort. This was to bursts of laughter, and it's too late to do anything. Might as well continue to enjoy ourselves. Their joking manner made me angry. I immediately jumped in with a story about my strivings to be zero waste and to move away from a consumerist lifestyle. To not own much, like Jesus did. The students were respectful and agreed wholeheartedly with my comments, and soon afterwards I left. But the conversation left me with a sour taste in the back of my mouth. There was so much more I wanted to say. This podcast, on the eighth day, is my chance to say it all. Hello, my name is Kara Grady, a student of environmental science and environmental studies at Iowa State University. I am a Roman Catholic, and I vote Democrat, which surprises many of the people in the communities I'm involved in. To cut to the chase, I am a single-issue voter, and climate change is my issue. And as a Catholic, I see climate change not as just an existential crisis, but the greatest moral crisis of our time. Why? Well, the answer is quite simple. In May of 2015, Pope Francis revealed his landslide encyclical Laudato Si, or On Care for Our Common Home. An encyclical is what you might call an open letter by the Pope to the greater community of lay Christians around the world, of which there are around 2 billion today. Laudato Si in particular focuses upon the environmental destruction of what Francis calls a throwaway culture and a technocratic paradigm. Both of these have formed strong roots here in America through our extreme and selective consumerism and through our heavy dependence upon technologies which are not neutral, 
for they create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles and shaping social possibilities along the lines dictated by the interest of certain powerful groups. Right now, I'm typing this script on a computer, which I sit in front of for about seven hours each day, my eyes glued to a screen that at its very essence is a hunk of wires, plastic, and metal. It has no life to it, no spontaneity. Yet as I type sentence after sentence, my worldview is reduced to this notebook-sized screen. My body is conditioned to sit and slump and hunch forward over the keys. My eyes ache. Francis continues with, The idea of promoting a different cultural paradigm and employing technology as a mere instrument is nowadays inconceivable. The technological paradigm has become so dominant that it would be difficult to do without its resources and even more difficult to utilize them without being dominated by their internal logic. It has become countercultural to choose a lifestyle whose goals are even partly independent of technology, of its cost and its power to globalize and make us all the same. Technology tends to absorb everything into its ironclad logic. Our capacity to make decisions, a more genuine freedom, and the space for each one's alternative creativity are diminished. I think this is why I can say one of the best times in my life was my internship at Mustard Seed Farm on the outskirts of Ames. Living in solidarity with the poor, Alice and Nate McGarry try to live a pre-modern lifestyle that uses as little electricity as possible and thrives in the dignity of manual labor. We often talked about how the mad chase for efficiency our economy is bent on only deprives us of the dignity of real work, which for me was getting down on my knees to pull weeds, running behind the sheep as we cornered them into a new feeding spot, and learning how to use a hoe for the first time in my life. Francis goes on to write, since the market tends to promote extreme consumerism in an effort to sell its products, people can easily get caught up in a whirlwind of needless buying and spending. Compulsive consumerism is one example of how the techno-economic paradigm affects individuals. This paradigm leads, us, leads people to believe that they are free as long as they have the supposed freedom to consume. But those really free are the minority who wield economic and financial power. Amid this confusion, postmodern humanity has not yet achieved a new self-awareness capable of offering guidance and direction, and this lack of identity is a source of anxiety. We have too many means, and only a few, in substantial ends. I myself am still learning to combat the, these instilled habits to consume, consume, consume. When I began my zero-waste journey, I still hung on to wearing makeup and trying to make sustainable pathways for the excess products I felt my life demanded. Over time, though, my reasoning process has turned to the four R's of refuse, reduce, reuse, recycle so that I simply demand less. In this way, I also try to fight off the greater sins of greed and selfishness. Francis writes, 
The current global situation engenders a feeling of instability and uncertainty, which in turn becomes a seedbed for collective selfishness. When people become self-centered and self-enclosed, their greed increases. The emptier a person's heart is, the more he or she needs things to buy, own, and consume. It becomes almost impossible to accept the limits imposed by reality. In this horizon, a genuine sense of the common good also disappears. As these attitudes become more widespread, social norms are respected only to the extent that they do not clash with personal needs. So, our concern cannot be limited merely to the threat of extreme weather events, but must also extend to the catastrophic consequences of social unrest. Obsession with a consumerist lifestyle, above all when few people are capable of maintaining it, can only lead to violence and mutual destruction. We are already seeing this mutual destruction play out in the fierce weather events of the past year. Enormous wildfires forcing hundreds of thousands across the western continent to flee. Hurricane after hurricane slamming into the coast. Half of the continental U.S. in a severe drought. And of course the Iowa floods of 2008 and 2016 and the derecho, which has been proclaimed the costliest thunderstorm in U.S. history, according to the Washington Post. And our collective greed for more and more is at the heart of this violence being waged on the natural world. This greed has grown so large that now human lives are being sacrificed to it. These lives are the lives of the poor, the homeless, who have no buildings to protect them from fierce winds, no air conditioning to escape deadly heat, no place to go when the rivers rise beyond their banks. Francis states that many of the poor live in areas particularly affected by phenomena related to warming, and their means of subsistence are largely dependent on natural reservoirs and ecosystem services such as agriculture, fishing, and forestry. They have no other financial activities or resources which can enable them to adapt to climate change or to face natural disasters, and their access to social servants, services and protection is very limited. There has been a tragic rise in the number of migrants seeking to flee from the growing poverty caused by environmental degradation. They are not recognized by international conventions as refugees. They bear the loss of the lives they have left behind without enjoying any legal protection whatsoever. Sadly, there is widespread indifference to such suffering, which is even now taking place throughout our world. Our lack of response to these tragedies involving our brothers and sisters points to the loss of that sense of responsibility for our fellow men and women upon which all civil society is founded. Our boundless greed is also claiming the lives of the young and hurting the unborn themselves. As reported in the New York Daily News when fleeing the Cold Springs fire, a young couple was badly burned and their one-year-old died. Meanwhile, sweeping research has shown that women exposed to high temperatures or air pollution are more likely to have premature, underweight, or stillborn babies. 
The Research in JAMA Network Open, part of the Journal of the American Medical Association, presents some of the most sweeping evidence so far linking aspects of climate change with harm to newborn children. Right now, this evidence is concentrated on minorities. The research adds to a growing body of evidence that minorities bear a disproportionate share of the danger from pollution and global warming. Not only are minority communities in the United States far more likely to be hotter than the surrounding areas, a phenomenon known as the heat island effect, but they are also more likely to be located near polluting industries. As a Catholic, I cannot let this mutual destruction continue. I encourage other Catholics to embrace the same stance. Francis writes that obstructionist attitudes, even on the part of believers, can range from denial of the problem to indifference, nonchalant resignation, or blind confidence in technical solutions. We require a new and universal solidarity. In this same way, I urge my own Catholic sisters and brothers to take up the cross against climate change. Denial and indifference are not going to save us. A radical attitude toward the poor, an enormous shift in lifestyles, will. Let us do what Jesus did and give up our needless pleasures to save ourselves from the pain of an uninhabitable earth. For the earth is Mary's queendom, the footstool of the Lord, the gift of the Creator, and thus worthy of our respect, protection, and love.